with me to the back of the Book of Praise to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 27, which can be found in the back of the Book of Praise on page 541. Last Sunday, I preached in connection with uh, the previous Lord's Day, Lord's Day 26, uh, where the message of the sermon was that baptism pictures the washing that we all need. Today, we hope to carry on with Lord's Day uh, 27, and the theme for the sermon will be baptism is a sign and seal of the gospel to seal God's promise to us and to signal God's claim on us. Lord's Day 27, does the outward washing with water in baptism itself wash away sins? No, only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. And we saw that last week if you were here with us last week. It's not the water, but it's the Holy Spirit that washes us inwardly from sin. So why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. And so the emphasis this afternoon is on, those, on that, that theme of, which comes up in the words assure and pledge. Assure, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge. Not, not only does baptism picture, but it also comes uh, together with a promise. It's a pledge of a promise. It's, it's an assurance the, of the promise of the gospel. This then leads to question 74, should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, that's another theme that we'll focus on, sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the New Covenant. After we sing uh, now from Psalm 105, stances one through, or sorry, hymn 80, stances one through six, we'll read in connection with this teaching of the Catechism from Genesis 17 and Acts 16. So hymn 80, the stanzas one through six, we'll sing now. Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 17, and we'll follow that up with Acts chapter 16. First Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, we'll read from verse one to 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. 
you will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Notice that phrase, the sign of the covenant. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So far from Genesis 17, we'll now turn to Acts 16 in the New Testament. Acts chapter 16 and read the verses 6 to 34. The Apostle Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra. Sorry, we'll start at verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we set out to sea and sailed straight forth Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. 
Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hopes of making money were gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet, feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, There was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. So far, a reading of God's word. Dear congregation of Jesus Christ, if I were to ask you to give me an example of a sign, what comes to mind? What would be some examples of signs that you're familiar with? How about a stop sign? Or maybe an arrow sign? Or a no entry sign? These are signs that tell us things like where and when to go or not to go. Then there's another kind of sign that tells us where we are. Like street name and city name signs. Can you think of other kinds of signs? How about signals, like hand motions? If I motion with my hand like this, it's a sign that I want you to come closer. And then another kind of sign would be a symptom. Like if you're coughing and have a sore throat and a runny nose, it's probably a sign that you're sick. Well, we could go on naming all kinds of different signs that we can think of, 
But what we want to focus in on this afternoon is two different ways in which Christian baptism with water acts as a sign of the Christian gospel. This afternoon, we want to consider this particularly in light of what the Bible says about circumcision as the sign of God's covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament. In our previous sermon last week, in connection with Lord's Day 26, we already saw one way that baptism acts as a sign of the gospel, as a picture of the washing from sin that we all need from Jesus Christ as his gracious gift. So a sign as a picture. Well, this afternoon, in connection with Lord's Day 27, we'll consider two further ways in which baptism acts as a sign of the gospel under the new covenant, much like the way circumcision acted or served under the old covenant. And so I preach God's word to you under this theme. Baptism is a sign and seal of the gospel. First, to seal God's promise to us. And second, to signal God's claim on us. First, then, we want to consider how baptism is a sign of the gospel to seal God's promise to us. His promise of the forgiveness of sins and new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, in our last sermon, we considered the way in which this promise of the gospel is pictured in baptism by the outward washing with water. While this promise is fulfilled in the believer by the inward washing with Christ's blood and spirit through faith. This is one way in which baptism functions as a sign of the gospel, as a visible picture of the invisible spiritual gifts that God promises to give to believers in the gospel. But there's another way that baptism functions as a sign of the gospel, which actually goes above and beyond its function merely as a picture, as a visual representation. Namely, baptism also functions as God's seal or pledge by which he guarantees the truth and reliability of his gospel promise so that believers may be all the more assured of their salvation in Christ. And this second function of the sign of baptism as a seal of the promise of the gospel is rooted in a pattern that's found in the Old Testament in which God made promises and covenants with his people to which he then added signs. So we'll go through a few of these covenants and these signs, these covenant signs. First example of this is a covenant that God made with Noah and the creation after the flood. God promised that he would never again destroy the whole world with a flood. He committed himself to that promise with a covenant or an oath. Another word for a covenant is an oath. And then he added to that promise and covenant, he added to that a sign to guarantee and assure Noah and his descendants that he was committed to keeping this promise and covenant. God said to Noah and his sons, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So you see, God gave the rainbow as a sign of his covenant with Noah 
Why? To seal or to guarantee his commitment to be true to his promise in that covenant. The purpose of the sign was to comfort and to reassure Noah and his descendants with God's promise of mercy and patience. And it was to do so as a visual reminder of this promise and this covenant. So when Noah or his descendants saw a rainbow in the sky, it was meant to remind them of God's promise and his covenant so that they might be comforted and built up in their faith in God's faithfulness to his word and his mercy towards his rebellious creatures. This way in which the rainbow functions in God's covenant with Noah also sets the stage for how circumcision functions as a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and his offspring. We see the same pattern in in God's covenant with Abraham as we saw in God's covenant with Noah. First, God delivers Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans and he makes special promises to them. God promises to bless Abraham with a multitude of descendants, to provide these descendants with a land of their own and to cause them to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So those are the promises. And then having made these promises to Abraham, God then committed himself to keep those promises by making a covenant with Abraham, by sealing his promises with an oath. You can read of this in Genesis chapter 15, where God had Abraham cut up a number of animals and lay them out, the two halves of the animals, in kind of a path, and then Uh, the Lord in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, symbolically representing the Lord, went through those pieces of the animals. This was to seal his promises with an oath, with a covenant. But then God added to this covenant a sign, as as we read in Genesis 17. He added a sign to the covenant in order to further guarantee and assure Abram and his descendants that he was committed to keeping the promises that his covenant with them already guaranteed. God said to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. These were the promises of the covenant. And then the sign. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Genesis 17 verse 11. And so you see, as he had done with the rainbow in his previous covenant with Noah, so now in this covenant with Abraham, God gives circumcision as a sign of the covenant. Why? To seal or to guarantee his commitment to be true to his promises in this covenant. The purpose of the sign was to comfort and reassure Abraham and his descendants with God's promises to bless them. The sign was to serve as a visible reminder of his covenant with them, of his oath. When Abram and his descendants witnessed either their own circumcision on their own bodies or that of their husband 
or of their infant children. These would be the circumstances in which you would witness circumcision or the evidence of circumcision, whichever the case might be. This was meant to remind them of God's covenant with them and his promises to them so that they might be comforted and built up in their faith in God's faithfulness to his word. This was God's purpose in giving circumcision as a sign of his covenant. We can give one more example from the Old Testament of this pattern of covenant signs. And that would be the sign that God added to confirm his covenant with the people of Israel. As God had delivered Noah from the world before the flood, and as he had delivered Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans, so he delivered the people of Israel from the land of Egypt and made promises to them. He gathered them around Mount Sinai and he promised them in Exodus chapter 19, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was his promise. Then after making this promise to them, God confirmed the promise with a covenant the covenant of the law that he made with them at Mount Sinai. And finally, God added to this covenant, again, a sign. He added a sign to further guarantee and assure the people of Israel that he was indeed committed to keeping his promise to his covenant, or his promise and his covenant, that he was committed to setting them apart as his special people in the midst of the nations. What was the sign of this covenant? Well, God said to Israel through Moses in Exodus 31, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, set you apart as holy. So you notice just as God called the Israelites to set apart the seventh day as holy. That was meant to be a sign that he had set apart the people of Israel as holy. He continues, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. So just as in Genesis 17, the sign of the covenant, circumcision, at one point is referred to as the covenant, so also the sign of the Sabbath is referred to here as a covenant forever. So God gave Israel the seventh day Sabbath as a sign of his covenant with them to seal or to guarantee his commitment to be true to his promise in this covenant, to set them apart as his holy people. When Israel observed this day of rest every seventh day, it was meant to be a reminder to them of God's covenant with them and his promises to them so that they might be comforted and built up in their faith in God's faithfulness to his word. Well, now that we've seen how the rainbow and circumcision and the Sabbath functioned as covenant signs before the coming of Christ, 
We're ready to see how Christian baptism functions now that Christ has come as a sign of the gospel. The New Testament declares that Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled all of God's Old Testament promises and covenants and that by his death on the cross and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Christ has instituted a new covenant between God and his people, which is a covenant of salvation by grace for all who believe. In this new covenant of the gospel, the promise that is sealed by the covenant is forgiveness of sins by Christ's blood and new life by his spirit for everyone who believes in him. God has also added to this new covenant a sign in order to further guarantee and assure his people that he is indeed committed to keeping his gospel promise in this new covenant. After his death and resurrection and before his ascension and the outpouring of his spirit, Jesus Christ, as the mediator of the new covenant, he instituted the sign of baptism with water to accompany the preaching of the gospel. He said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Christ has given baptism to his church as a sign of the new covenant of the gospel. He's given it to seal or guarantee his commitment to be true to his gospel promise as a visual reminder of his promise in the gospel. And so when you and I receive or witness baptism, then its God-given purpose is to point us to God's new covenant and gospel promise to us in Christ so that we may be comforted and built up in our faith in God's faithfulness to his word in the gospel. This is the way that God dealt with his people before Christ came giving covenant signs to reassure them of his promises to them. And so too, this is how God deals with his people now that Christ has come. He gives us baptism as a new covenant sign in order to reassure us of his gospel promise that he will indeed graciously grant forgiveness of sins and new life through Christ's blood and spirit to everyone who believes in him. And so when we uh, witness Christian baptism, and when we also reflect on the fact of our own baptism, if we have been baptized, then may we be reminded of the gospel and assured of its promise for our comfort and for the strengthening of our faith. Let us make this promise our own, trusting that also to me personally, God grants the forgiveness of all my sins and the renewal of all and the renewal of my heart by his Holy Spirit and blood, as surely as I have been baptized with water as a sign and seal of this gospel. Dear believer, God has given you the sign and seal of Christian baptism because he wants to assure you that his gospel promises are real, that they are reliable, 
and that he is committed to keeping them. Trust him. Hold on to his reliable word. And if you're not a believer, these same promises are held out to you too in the gospel. Together with a call to turn from sin and unbelief and to trust in and worship Christ. And if you are not a believer and you have been baptized, then this call comes to you all the more personally since God has put his mark on you. And this brings us to consider now in the second place how Christian baptism is a sign and seal of the gospel also to signal God's claim on us. Baptism functions not only as a picture and guarantee of the gospel's promise to us, but also as an indicator of the gospel's obligation upon us. That is to say, baptism serves as a visible sign or signal that God claims us as his own. He, as it were, puts his tag on us, his tag of ownership. He says, you belong to me. And by doing so, he calls us to respond to his gospel promise in faith. We find precedent for this function of baptism in the Old Testament again in the way that God explained the role of circumcision as the sign of his covenant with Abraham. In addition to serving as a picture and guarantee of God's promises to Abraham and his descendants, circumcision also served as a mark of God's claim upon them as his people. It was a visible mark by which he set them apart from other nations and religions to be a people for his own possession and worship. In other words, circumcision was to serve as a mark of consecration to the Lord. It signaled the people's corporate status as a holy people, a set-apart people, a people set apart and devoted to the Lord. And it's this message of circumcision that finds expression in God's command that Abram and his descendants should circumcise every male within the jurisdiction of their households. Not just those who wanted to, not just those that were biological offspring, but every male who was in, within the jurisdiction of the household. God said to Abram, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or whether bought with your money from any foreigner who was not of your offspring, both shall surely be circumcised and so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant one of the things that God was communicating by instituting this sign of circumcision for every male of the household was you belong to me because as a member of this household I have set you apart together with the head of this household to worship me and serve me as your God and to receive in faith the promises of my covenant. My covenant is for you too, and I entitle you to its benefits by grace if you receive it in faith. That's the message of circumcision in the covenant with Abraham. The circumcision of Abraham and his household communicated this promise and this claim of God to all who received the sign. And was it only to adults and older children that God gave this sign of his covenant? No, but also to infants. God commanded Abraham, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. 
God placed his claim on the entire household and so sealed the promises of his covenant to infants as well as adults that they too might be assured of God's promises and their own obligation to embrace these promises by faith and to acknowledge God's claim on them as they grew up, as part of God's set-apart people. This is what God communicated to his people when he first instituted this sign in Genesis 17. But as God continued to unfold and reveal his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, through the pages of the Bible and through redemptive history, he continued to teach his people. And he had to teach his people that outward physical circumcision as a sign of God's external outward call and claim upon them, this didn't have a one-to-one correspondence with spiritual salvation because that comes through an inward spiritual circumcision of the heart. As we've seen, circumcision was a mark of consecration. It signaled that someone belonged to God's set-apart holy people. But at the same time, outward circumcision was not able to accomplish inward circumcision or inward and spiritual holiness of heart. This inward consecration of the heart is what God ultimately desires of his people. God wants our hearts. And so he says, for example, in Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And be no longer stubborn. And in Jeremiah 4, verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, lest my wrath go forth like fire because of the evil of your deeds. Mercifully, God did not only require this, but he also promised to accomplish this heart circumcision himself. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And through faith in Jesus Christ, this promise is fulfilled in our hearts. As Colossians 2, verse 11 says, In Christ you, Paul is speaking to believers, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, that is a spiritual circumcision. And he says that this was by the circumcision of Christ. And this ultimately is what the Old Testament sign of circumcision pointed forward to, to the circumcision of Christ, by which our hearts are inwardly and spiritually consecrated to the Lord by regeneration, by being born again, and through renewal. So Christ accomplishes and provides the circumcision or consecration of the heart which God required and promised of his people in the Old Testament. We saw a similar pattern last week in the inward washing that was required by the law, promised by the prophets, and provided through Jesus Christ. And yet in the same way, Christ fulfills the significance of baptism as a sign of consecration. Baptism, too, is an outward sign that points to the inward washing of Christ by which our hearts are inwardly cleansed and consecrated to the Lord by regeneration and renewal. Baptism in the New Covenant and circumcision in the Old Covenant, you see, are both signs and seals of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one pointing forward in time and the other pointing backward, as it were, both pointing to the same person and work of Jesus Christ 
the only Savior. Well, now that we've seen how baptism signifies the same spiritual realities as circumcision, it should be evident how baptism also serves in the new covenant age, just as circumcision did in the old, as an outward and visible mark of God's claim on the entire households of believers, including infant children. Indeed, we find when we turn to the New Testament in the book of Acts, that as the apostles carried out their commission to make disciples of all nations, they continued the pattern that God established with circumcision. And they baptized not only individual believers, but also their entire households. We read that in Acts 16. Now, did this mean that the entire household was made up of true believers who were spiritually saved or, if you will, baptized in heart? Is that what it meant? Well, it meant that no more than outward circumcision in the Old Covenant meant that every Israelite was circumcised in heart. Esau was outwardly circumcised, but not inwardly. Same with Ishmael. This simply isn't the point of circumcision, and neither is it the point of baptism. What then is the point of baptism if it's not to tell you that you are saved? Well, what I've been trying to show you from God's word in this sermon and in my previous sermon is this. Christian baptism is, first of all, a picture of the washing we all need to point our faith to Jesus Christ and the washing with his blood and spirit that he promises to give us when we believe in him. God gives us baptism to picture what he promises us in the gospel. And second, as I tried to show you in this first part of this afternoon's sermon, God also gives us baptism as a seal to the truth and reliability of his promise and his commitment to carry through on his promise so that we may confidently make this promise our own by faith and so be assured and built up in our faith. Notice both as a picture and as a promise, baptism calls for faith as a response. It's not automatic. And finally, as I've tried to show you in the second part of this sermon, God also gave us baptism to signal his claim upon us as part of the people that he has visibly set apart from the world and specially calls to himself. As a signal of God's claim on us, baptism calls and obliges us again, to respond to God's gospel promise in faith and then in dependence on Christ for his Holy Spirit to consecrate our hearts to the Lord more and more throughout our lives as Christians. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, let each one of us who has received baptism, who have received God's sign and seal, make use of this sign in accordance with God's own design in giving it to us. Let us fix our faith not merely on the sign, but on the gospel that our baptism signifies. And let us respond in faith and love to God's claim on our hearts and lives that our baptism signals. Dear believer, when we through weaknesses fall into sins, we must not despair of God's mercy nor continue in sin. For baptism is a seal 
and a trustworthy testimony that we have an eternal covenant with God, that he has promised us the washing away of our sins through Christ's blood and the renewal of our hearts by his spirit through faith. And so hold on to this gospel promise by faith and use your baptism as a hand grip, as a handle to get a hold on that promise. That's what it's there for. As for you who may have been baptized but who have not yet responded perhaps in faith and love to God's claim on you, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for God to give you a sign that his promise is really for you too? He's already given you a sign in the sign and seal of baptism, a sign and seal that the promise of the gospel is for you too. And a sign that God is calling you personally to turn from your sin and unbelief and to start trusting and worshiping Jesus Christ. So won't you do so today before it's too late? Come to Jesus Christ, whoever you are and whatever you've done. Come to him by faith today and he will certainly wash away your sins and make you new as surely as water washes away dirt from your body. Your baptism is God's guarantee of this gospel promise for everyone who believes. Amen.